A little while ago, a taxi was driving down the Strand. In the taxi were four people, two adults and two children. The children were getting increasingly more and more excited, especially the little girl. They'd been promised by their grandparents a, a, a special treat, and they didn't know what it was. And they kept asking, is it that, is it that? No, it wasn't. The little girl had been going with her class to see the musical Joseph when she'd been rushed into hospital to have her appendix out, so she hadn't been. The taxi comes down the strand, and her grandmother just taps her on the arm and says, look. And if any of you were in London when Joseph was on, down the side of the theatre where it's on, in the colours of the multicoloured coat is the name Joseph spelled out. And I point... Ah, oh, I've given it a game away, haven't I? The grandmother pointed to the sign and said, look. Oh, it's Joseph. And then as that was said, the taxi turned across the traffic onto the other side of the road. And the little girl's eyes lit up and said, are we going to see Joseph? to such an extent that the taxi driver almost had tears in his eyes. And of course, I've given the game away because it was me and it was my granddaughter, and we went to see Joseph. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? We all know the story, probably, many of us anyway, from our earliest years. The story of a, a young man, a favourite son, probably got his brother's... Oh, they just thought he was awful because he was their father's favourite, and the coat of many colours, and then how he was sold into slavery, taken to Egypt, how he came to work for a very influential man in Egypt, and then that all went wrong, and he was thrown into prison, and then how things moved from there. But, you know, that story, which is a lovely children's story, I think teaches us something very, very important about God and his dealings with men and women, the men and women he loves. And I want to just very quickly this morning draw out four themes from this story. And the first one we've alluded to when we've talked about this, and you have it on your service sheets, the big picture. We have to look at the story of Joseph in the context of the big picture. We know from the beginning of the Bible, the story in Genesis of the creation of the universe, lush and beautiful, with a very special place for men and women in it. And then the story moves to a world without food, famine, desolation, where a believer organises food and the world is saved. A fundamental part of God's plan Joseph, we don't really know quite what he was like when he was that young man of 17. He really did annoy his brothers. Did he really have insight and wisdom? He might have done, but he perhaps didn't go about it in the best way. And he sold into slavery into Egypt. And for Joseph, it was a land of surprises and extremes, bringing prison, prestige, alienation and fame, punishment and power. And I love the words of Joseph to his brothers towards the end of the story because this is what he says to him. Don't be afraid. Am I not in the place of God? You intend harm to me, 
but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And you know, we need to see our lives in that framework. It's so easy for us as human beings just to get so bogged down with the immediate and the situation we're in. And we need to see it as part of God's big picture. I know in care, when we're dealing with issues to do with religious freedoms and the dignity of life and the vulnerable, it can all get on top of you at times and think we're actually, as God's people, not really achieving very much at all. We feel like aliens and strangers in a foreign land, as Peter put it. But we need to keep trusting because God has a plan. And you know, I think the Bible, one of the lovely things about the Bible, and I know many of you will agree with me, is that it doesn't take people and sort of put them on a pedestal and it's all wonderful and toothpastey and, and fantastic. Very often the people who have the greatest insights into the goodness of God are the people who have actually experienced some of the worst situations that life can throw at them. People like Jeremiah, who talks about God's plan to prosper us. Joseph knew that as well, as we'll see in a moment. We don't know why bad things happen. We don't know. There aren't easy answers. And yet, to God's people, in those difficult times, very often, that's when, when they look back, God has been there for them. On that DVD that you've just seen, if I may give a personal illustration, you saw talking about the work of Care Confidential, Joanna Thompson. Joanna was my closest friend. A bit earlier on this year, within nine weeks, ten weeks ago, she had been playing golf in France. Within nine weeks, she had succumbed to pancreatic cancer and died. I don't know why in God's plan that happened. But what I do know, and I'm absolutely sure about, is that I, as I sat by her bed in the hospice a week before she died and held her hand, and we talked about God's love, and as we talked about the fact that she may go home or else the angels that are surrounding her bed would take her to be with the Lord she loved. And she'd be dancing and singing and worshipping before him. She squeezed my hand. And in the midst of pain comes redemption. But you know, in that, there comes the nature of the attack of the devil. We tend not to see God's big picture. And yet, go back to Joseph. He could all have gone so horribly wrong. Here was a family that was more dysfunctional than most families we know. God's plan was these 12 sons of Jacob would be the leaders of the people of Israel. His big plan. And yet, it could have all gone so horribly wrong because that family was racked with jealousy, favoritism, deceit, 
Do you remember how they, the brothers sold him? They dipped his, his, this wonderful coat of many colours in the goat's blood and it looked as if he'd been killed. What a dysfunctional family. Jacob is described as a man of God, a man who wrestled with God. He had wonderful experiences of God. He saw the ladder going up to heaven. And yet, what a, well, what a terrible father in many ways. Ten of his sons knew that he had never loved their mother. In fact, he says he hated her. How many sons do I have to have, says Leah, before you will love me? She and her sister Rachel, the love of Jacob's life, became rivals. There was, if you read the story, there's sexual immorality, there's deceit. Doesn't Satan know just where to attack us to do the most damage? It could all have gone so horribly wrong. And yet, in the midst of it, we see the nature of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful chapter about faith, Joseph is in that list. He's in that list as a man who was commended for his faith and his vision. Let's just think about that vision for a moment. Against all the odds, Joseph maintained his devotion and witness to God. Let's look at it in more detail. Let's think about how he lived his life. When Joseph went to Egypt, he was bought by Potiphar, you may remember, a very prestigious man in Egypt with a big household. And we're told that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph. The way he lived his life commended God to him. Joseph, you remember, was then horribly all went wrong. If you remember, in the, in, in the place where he worked and lived with Potiphar, Potiphar's wife had got designs on him, and she tried to get him to sleep with her. Joseph didn't, and so he was arrested and put into prison because she claimed he had. There, in the depth of that prison cell, when everything seemed to have gone wrong, the prison governor saw that the Lord was with him. He earned his credibility in the way he lived his life. And yet things went wrong. Again, moral problems. How do we live our lives? Are we honest? Or do we see, are we seen as sometimes being selfish and proud and unforgiving? That's a biggie, isn't it? Do we have time to listen to people, to care for them, to really value them? Or do those little foxes get in and it begins to be spoilt? Joseph, you know, saw everywhere as holy. In his work, in the prison, even in a pagan palace. There was no divide for him between his worship of God and where he lived and how he lived out his life. And one of the things that really excites me about the work I do with care is when I get out on the road and meet people and you see people who are just ordinary people, ordinary Christians who think they couldn't possibly do the things they end up doing, but God's with them, helping them, and they live their lives in a way that commends him. And that's a challenge to us because you know there's nothing more powerful in the world of people seeking faith 
who can look at Christians and say, well, just look at them. If that's what it's about, I don't want anything to do with it. We have a huge responsibility. Though God was in, tr- in control, Joseph's faith must have been tested to the absolute limit. He thought he got it made in Potiphar's house. He had power, fame, wealth, and yet he ends up in prison. And then do you remember how the story goes? Two other prisoners, the cupbearer to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's baker, and they have dreams. And they're troubled by them. And Joseph is able to interpret the dreams for them. And when they go back to see Pharaoh, Joseph says to them, just remember me. And I can put myself in Joseph's position and think, perhaps now, God, perhaps now I'm going to get out of this place. He was in prison for another two years before he was called before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. A man who trusted God in the silence was chosen to represent God at the highest level. Because if you remember, he was then taken as he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams of the famine. And he was put in the second most powerful position in the most powerful nation of the world at that time. He got to ride in the second chariot. No one did that. Pharaoh was in his chariot at the front. Joseph in the second chariot. I don't know about you, but in my life, I know there have been people who seem so godly, so Christian, so spiritual. And I look at them and think, you know, I'm not like them. I could never be like them. I'm just not as good as them. And yet, it was Joseph, the proud, perhaps arrogant, rather brash young man, the man who had everything going against him, who was able to trust God and learn from him. And the Bible is full of people who say, I can't, I'm not good enough. And God says, I will give you the words to speak. I will be with you. And Joseph knew that. Towards the end of his life, his testimony to the children that he had, the names he gave them testify that. Manasseh, God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And Ephraim, God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The nature of his faith. But you know, what I love about this story, more than anything else, is the nature of God's grace. Just go back to what we said before. A family that was so flawed. And yet God used them to bring salvation to a broken world. Judah, his brother, who sold him into slavery, hatched up the plot. Jacob, who deceived his brother Esau. And they get second chances third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. You know, God gives us, while we're here at least, endless chances because he loves us. And it was Judah who at the end of the story, remember the story with Benjamin, the beloved son, is Joseph says, I'm, I, I want him to remain behind because this cup has been stolen. Remember the story? It's Judah who says, no, no, take me. 
Judah who'd sold him into slavery. And you know, the nature of God's grace is what singles out Christianity. There is no other religion in the world that talks about grace. Everything else, in every other religion, you have to earn your salvation. That's not grace. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And those wonderful words that Philip Yancey quotes, what is grace? There is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do that will make God love me less. That's God's grace. Some of you will remember seeing a little while ago the film Amazing Grace, I'm sure. And I love that film, the story of the life of Wilberforce and his fight over so many years to end slavery. And I love the scene in the church in, in London where um, John Newton, the slave trader, who had become a, a priest and, and, and well, a, a minister in, in the church, and, and he, he turned from his ways, but suddenly... In old age, as he's blind, he suddenly knows. And there's that wonderful phrase where he says to Wilberforce, now I understand. Now I understand. That's God's grace. There's nothing I can do that will make God love me more. There is nothing I can do that will make God love me less. Sometimes, like Joseph, we don't see it. He doesn't seem to be there. And yet, thinking back to what Tony said in the children's talk, that little dot seems so far away, but just fixing the eyes on it and you got back. God is there. He's there in the silence. And he's there with his grace. But you know, when we think of Judah, Joseph's brother, the founder, the leader, his name taken for the great nation. But if we look back at the big picture again, at the end of the Bible, the story in Revelation of what it will be like, there is a wonderful picture. The picture in heaven, God's glory, and the lion of the tribe of Judah able to open the scrolls, the lamb who was slain. The big picture. And those wonderful words, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. We may this morning be rejoicing in the fact that we know God's grace, that we know his goodness in our lives. We may be like Joseph in prison. And it just doesn't seem to be working out and God isn't there. But God is there because there is a big picture. And all we have to do is to keep our eyes fixed on him. And he becomes nearer. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. He will continue to overcome in our lives. All those attacks and his grace will go with us and strengthen us in those blows and arrows that life throws at us and in the good times as well.
the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. <laughs>